Chapter 12 of Tales of Mean Streets. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Orty. Tales of Mean Streets by Arthur Morrison. Chapter 12 The Red Cow Group. The Red Cow Anarchist Group no longer exists. Its leading spirit appears no more among his devoted comrades, and without him they are ineffectual. He was but a young man, this leading spirit. His name, by the by, was Socher. But of his commanding influence among the older but unlettered men about him, read and judge. For themselves they had long been plunged in a beery apathy, neither regarding nor caring for the fearful iniquities of the social system that oppressed them. A red cow group they had always been, before the coming of Socher to make anarchists of them, for gathering in a remote compartment of the red cow bar, reached by a side door in an alley, a compartment uninvaded and almost undiscovered by any but themselves, where night after night they drank their beer and smoked their pipes, sunk in a stagnant ignorance of their manifold wrongs. During the day, old Baker remained to garrison the stronghold. He was a long, bankrupt tradesman with invisible resources and no occupation but this, and no known lodging but the red cow snuggery. There he remained all day and every day, old in the fort, as he put it, with his nose, a fiery signal of possession, never two feet from the rim of his pot, while Jerry Shand was carrying heavy loads in Columbia Market, while Gunno Polson was running for a bookmaker in Fleet Street, while Snorky was wherever his instinct took him, doing whatever paid best and keeping out of trouble as long as he could, and while the rest of the group, two or three, picked a living out of the London heap in ways and places unspecified. But at evening they joined Old Baker, and they filled their snuggery. Their talk was rarely of politics, and never of social problems, Present and immediate facts filled their whole field of contemplation. Their accounts were kept, and their references to pecuniary matters were always stated in terms of liquid measure. Thus, fourpence was never spoken of in the common way. It was a court, and a court was the monetary standard of the community, even as tuppence was a pint, and eight pence was half a gallon. It was Snorky who discovered Socher, and it was with Snorky that that revolutionary appeared before the Red Cow group with his message of enlightenment. Snorky, who was christened something else that nobody knew or cared about, had a trick of getting into extraordinary and unheard-of places in his daily quest of quartz, and he had met Socher in a loft at the top of a house in Berners Street, Shadwell. It was a loft where the elect of anarchism congregated nightly, and where everybody lectured all the others. Socher was a very young anarchist, restless by reason of not being sufficiently listened to, and glad to find outsiders to instruct and to impress with a full sense of his sombre, mystic daredevilry. Therefore, he came to the Red Cow with Snorky to spread, as he said, the light. He was not received with enthusiasm, perhaps because of a certain unlaundered aspect of person remarkable even to them of the Red Cow group. Greece was his chief exterior characteristic, 
and his thick hair, turning up over his collar, seemed to have lain for long unharried of brush or comb. His face was a sebaceous trickle of long features, and on his hands there was a murky deposit that looked like scales. He wore, in all weathers, a long black coat with a rectangular rent in the skirt, and his throat he clipped in a brown neckerchief that on a time had been of the right anarchist red. But no want of welcome could abash him. Here, indeed, he had an audience, an audience that did not lecture on its own account, a crude audience that might take him at his own valuation. So he gave it to that crude audience, hot and strong. They and he were the salt of the earth, bullied, plundered and abused, down with everything that wasn't down already, and so forth and so on. His lectures were continued. Every night it was the same as every other, and each several chapter of his discourse was a repetition of the one before. Slowly the red cow group came round. Plainly other people were better off than they, and certainly each man found it hard to believe that anybody else was more deserving than himself. "'Why are we poor?' asked Socha, leaning forward and jerking his extended palm from one to another, as though attempting a hasty collection. "'I ask you straight, why are we poor? "'Why is it, my friends, that often and often "'you'll find you ain't got a penny in your pocket, "'not for to get a crust of bread "'or half a pint of reasonable refreshment? "'How is that happens? "'Again, I ask, how?' "'Snorky, with a feeling that an answer was expected from somebody, "'presently murmured, "'No mugs,' which encouraged Gunnar Paulson to suggest, "'Back as all stony broke.' Jerry Shan said nothing, but reflected on the occasional result of a day on the loose. Old Baker neither spoke nor thought. I tell you, me friends, it's cause of the rotten state of society. Why do you allow the lazy, idle, dirty, do-nothing upper classes, as they call themselves, to reap all the benefits of your toil, while you slave and slave to keep them in luxury and starve yourselves? Why don't you go and take your shares of the wealth lying around you? There was another pause. Gunno Paulson looked at his friends one after another, spat emphatically, and said, Coppers, because of the brute forces the privileged classes is edged themselves in with, that's all. Because of the paid myrmidons armed and kept to make slaves of the people. Because of the magistrates and police. Then why not get rid of the magistrates and police? They're no good, are they? Who wants them? I ask, who? They are a nuisance, admitted Snorky, who had done a little time himself. He was a mere groundling and persisted in regarding the proceedings as simple conversation instead of an oration with pauses at the proper places. Nobody wants them. Nobody has is any good. They don't have them, me friends. Don't have them. It all rests with you. Don't have no magistrates, nor police, nor government, nor parliament, nor monarchy, nor county council, nor nothing. Make a clean sweep of them. Blow them up. Then you'll have your rights. The time's coming, I tell you. It's coming. Take my word for it. Now you toil and slave. Then everybody will have to work, whether he likes it or not. And two hours of work a day will be all you'll have to do. Old Baker looked a little alarmed and for a moment paused in his smoking. 
Two hours a day at most. That's all. And all your wants provided for, free and liberal. Some of the group gave a licorice look across the bar. No authority, no government, no privilege and nothing to interfere. Free contract between man and man, subject to free revision and change. What, sir? demanded Jerry Shand, who was the slowest convert. Why that, Socher explained, means that everybody can make what arrangements with his fellow man he likes for to carry on the business of life. But nothing can't bind you. You chuck over the arrangement if it suits best. Oh, said Gunnar Paulson musingly, rotating his pot horizontally before him to stir the beer. That'd be handy sometimes. They call it Welshin now. The light spread fast and free, and in a few nights the Red Cow Group was a very promising little bed of anarchy. Socher was at pains to have it reported at two places west of Tottenham Court Road and at another in Dean Street, Soho, that at last a comrade had secured an excellent footing with a party of the proletariat of East London, hitherto looked on as hopeless material. More, that an early manifestation of activity might be expected in that quarter. Such activity had been held advisable of late, in view of certain extraditions. And such as discourse at the Red Cow turned, lightly and easily, toward the question of explosives. Anybody could make them, he explained. Nothing simpler with care. And here he posed at large in the character of mysterious desperado, the wonder and admiration of all the Red Cow group. They should buy nitric acid, he said, of the strongest sort, and twice as much sulfuric acid. The shops where they sold photographic materials were best and cheapest for these things, and no questions were asked. They should mix the acids and then add, gently, drop by drop, the best glycerin, taking care to keep everything cool, after which the whole lot must be poured into water to stand for an hour. Then a thick, yellowish, oily stuff would be found to have sunk to the bottom, which must be passed through several pails of water to be cleansed. And there it was, a terrible explosive. You handled it with care and poured it on brick dust or dry sand or anything of that sort that would soak it up and then it could be used with safety to the operator. The group listened with rapt attention, more than one pot stopping halfway on its passage mouthwards. Then Jerry Shand wanted to know if Socher had ever blown up anything or anybody himself. The missionary admitted that that glory had not been his. I'm one of the teachers, my friends, one of the pioneers that goes to show the way for the active workers like you. I only come to explain the principles and set you in the right road to the social revolution so as you may get your rights at last. It's for you to act. Then he explained that action might be taken in two ways, either individually or by mutual aid in the group. Individual work was much to be preferred, being safer, but a particular undertaking often necessitated cooperation. But that was for the workers to settle as the occasion arose. However, one thing must be remembered. If the group operated, each man must be watchful of the rest. There must be no half-measures, no timorousness. 
Any comrade wavering, temporising, or behaving in any way suspiciously must be straightway suppressed. There must be no mistake about that. It was desperate and glorious work, and there must be desperate and rapid methods, both of striking and guarding. These things he made clear in his best conspirator's manner, with nods and scowls and a shaken forefinger, as of one accustomed to oversetting empires. The men of the Red Cow Group looked at each other and spat thoughtfully. Then a comrade asked what had better be blown up first. Socher's opinion was that there was most glory in blowing up people, in a crowd or at a theatre. But a building was safer as there was more chance of getting away. Of buildings, a public office was probably to be preferred, something in Whitehall, say, or a bank. Nobody seemed to have tried a bank. He offered the suggestion now. Of course, there were not many public buildings in the East End, but possibly the group would like to act in their own neighbourhood. It would be a novelty and would attract notice. The question was one for their own decision, independent freedom of judgment being the right thing in these matters. There were churches, of course, and the factories of the bloated capitalist. Particularly, he might suggest, the gasworks close by. There was a large gasometer abutting on the street, and probably an explosion there would prove tremendously effective, putting the lights out everywhere and attracting great attention in the papers. That was glory. Jerry Shand hazarded a remark about the lives of the men in the gasworks, but Socher explained that that was a trivial matter. Revolutions were never accomplished without bloodshed, and a few casual lives were not to be weighed in the balance against the glorious consummation of the social upheaval. He repeated his contention when some weaker comrade spoke of the chance of danger to the operator, and repeated it with the proper scorn of the soft-handed pusillanimity that shrank from danger to life and limb in the cause. Look at the glory, and consider the hundredfold vengeance on the enemy in the day to come. The martyr's crown was his, who should die at the post of duty. His eloquence prevailed. There were murmurs no more. Here, tell us the name of the stuff again, broke out Gunnar Paulson, resolutely feeling for a pencil and paper. Blimey, I'll make some tomorrow. He wrote down the name of the ingredients with much spelling. Thick, yellow, oily stuff, ain't it, what you make? He asked. Yes, and keep it cool. The group broke up, stern and resolute, and Socher strode to his home exultant, a man of power. For the next night or two, the enthusiasm at the red car was unbounded. There was no longer any questioning of principles or action. Every man was an eager anarchist, strong and devoted in the cause. The little chemical experiment was going on well, Gunno Paulson reported, with confident nods and winks. Socher repeated his discourse as a matter of routine to maintain the general ardour, which had, however, to endure a temporary check as a result of a delicate inquiry of Snorkies as to what funds might be expected from headquarters. For there were no funds, said Socher, somewhat surprised at the question. What? demanded Jerry Shand, opening his mouth and putting down his pipe. Ain't we going to get nothing for all this? They would get the glory, Socher assured him, and the consciousness of striking a mighty blow at this and that and the other, but that was all and instantly the faces of the group grew long. But, 
said old Baker. I thought all you blokes always got something from the committee. There was no committee and no funds. There was nothing but glory and victory and triumph and the social revolution and things of that kind. For a little, the comrades looked at each other awkwardly, but they soon regained their cheerfulness with zeal no whit abated. The sitting closed with promises of an early gathering for the next night. But when the next night came, Sacha was later than usual. Hello, shouted Gunnar Paulson as he entered. Here you are at last. We've had to do important business without you. See, he added in a lower tone, here's the stuff. And he produced an old physic bottle, nearly full of thick yellowish fluid. Sotya started back half a pace and slightly paled. Don't shake it, he whispered hoarsely. Don't shake it for God's sake. Well, what'd you bring it here for like that? It's awful stuff. Blimey. He looked uneasily about the group and wiped his forehead with the back of his hand. I, I, I thought you'd get the job over soon as the stuff was ready. Yeah, my God, he squeaked under his breath. Don't put it down hard on the table like that. It's such, such awful stuff. He wiped his forehead again and still standing, glanced once more apprehensively round the circle of impassive faces. Then, after a pause, he asked with an effort, What, what are you going to do now? Blow up the bleeding gasworks, of course, answered Gunnar Paulson complacently. Here's a penneth of silver sand, and a backer canister, and some wire, and a big cracker with a long touch paper, so as to stick out the canister lid. That ought to set it off, oughtn't it? Here, you pour the stuff over the sand, don't you? And he pulled out the cork and made ready to mix. Hold on, hold on, don't! Wait a bit for God's sake, cried Sodger in a sweat of terror. You you don't know what awful stuff it is, so help me you don't. You, you'll blow us all up if you don't keep it still. You, you'll want some other things. I'll go and... But Jerry Shan stood grimly against the door. This here conspiracy'll have to be gone through proper, he said. We can't have no waverers, nor blokes won't want to clear out in the middle of it, and perhaps go and tell the police. Them sort we has to suppress, see? There's all the stuff there, me lad, and you know it. What's more, it's you as has got to put it up agin the gasworks and set it off. The hapless sodger turned a yellower pallor and asked faintly, Me? Why me? All done regular and proper, Jerry replied. For you come. We voted it, by ballot, all square. You'd have come earlier, you'd have had to vote yourself. Sotcher pushed at Jerry's shoulder despairingly. I won't. I won't, he gasped. Let me go. It ain't fair. I wasn't here. Let me go. None of your shoving, young man said Jerry severely. None of your shoving, else I'll have to punch you on the jaw. You're a bleeding nice conspirator, you are. It's pretty plain we can't depend on you. And you know what that means, eh? Don't you? You're one of the sort as has to be suppressed. That's what it means. Here, have a drink of this beer and see if that can't put a little heart in you. You've got to do it, so you might as well do it cheerful. Snorky, give him a drink. But the wretched revolutionary would not drink. 
He sank in a corner, the furthest from the table where Gono Polson was packing his dreadful canister, a picture of stupefied affright. Presently he thought of the bar, a mere yard of counter in an angle of the room with a screen standing above it, and conceived a wild notion of escape by scrambling over. But scarce had he risen ere the watchful Jerry divined his purpose. "'Hold him, Snorky,' he said. "'Keep him in the corner, and if he won't drink that beer, pour it over his head.' Snorky obeyed, gravely and conscientiously, and the bedraggled Socher, cowed from protest, whined and sobbed desolately. When all was ready, Jerry Shan said, "'I suppose it's no good asking you to do it willing, like a man.' "'Let me go!' I ain't well, so help me I ain't. I, I might do it wrong. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a teacher, a speaker, not the active branch, so help me. Put it off for tonight, wait till tomorrow. I ain't well, and, and, and you're very hard on me. Desperate work, desperate ways, Jerry replied laconically. You're behaving very suspicious, and you're rebelling against the orders of the group. There's only one physic for that, ain't there, in the rules. You've got to be suppressed. Question is, how? We'll have to kill him, quiet, somehow, he proceeded, turning to the group. Quiet and quick. It's my belief he's spying for the police and wants to get out to split on us. Question is, how to do for him? Such a rose. A staring spectre. He opened his mouth to call, but there came forth from it only a dry murmur. Hands were across his mouth at once, and he was forced back into the corner. One suggested a clasp knife at the throat, another a stick in his neckerchief, twisted to throttling point. But in the end it was settled that it would be simpler and would better destroy all traces to dispatch him in the explosion, to tie him to the canister, in fact. A convulsive movement under the men's hands decided them to throw more beer on Socher's face, for he seemed to be fainting. Then his pockets were invaded by Gono Polson, who turned out each in succession. "'You won't have no use for money where you're going,' he observed callously. "'Besides, it'll be bloke to bits, and no use to nobody. Look at the bloke at Greenwich, how his things was blowed away.' "'Hello?' Here's two half-crowns and some tanners. Seven and frippence altogether with the brands. This is a bloke what ain't got no funds. This will be divided on free and equal principles to help pay for that beer you've wasted. Hold up, old man. Think of the glory. Perhaps you're all right, but it's best to be on the safe side. And dead blokes can't split to the coppers. And you mustn't forget the glory. You have to shed blood in a revolution, and a few odd lives more or less don't matter. Not a single damn. Keep your eye on the bleeding glory. They'll have photos of you in the papers. All the broken bits in a heap. Facsimilar as found on the spot. What a comfort that'll be. But the doomed creature was oblivious, prostrate, a swooning heap. They ran a piece of clothesline under his elbows and pulled them together tight. Then they hobbled his ankles 
and took him among them through the alley and down the quiet street, singing and shouting their loudest as they went, in case he might sufficiently recover his powers to call for help. But he did not. And there, in the shadow, at the foot of the great gasometer, they flung him down with a parting kick and a barbarous knock on the head to keep him quiet for those few necessary moments. Then the murderous canister, bound with wire, was put in place. The extruding touch-paper was set going with a match, and the red cow anarchist disappeared at a run, leaving their victim to his fate. Presently, the policeman on that beat heard a sudden report from the neighbourhood of the gasworks and ran to see what it might mean. The next morning, Alfred Socher was charged at the Thames Police Court as a drunk and incapable. He had been found in a helpless state near the gasworks and appeared to have been tied at the elbows and ankles by mischievous boys who had also, it seemed, ignited a cracker nearby where he lay. The divisional surgeon stated that he was called to the prisoner and found him tearful and incoherent, and smelling strongly of drink. He complained of having been assaulted in a public house, but could give no intelligible account of himself. A canister found by his side appeared to contain a mixture of sand and castor oil, but prisoner could not explain how it came there. The magistrate fined him five shillings, with the alternative of seven days and as he had no money, he was removed to the cells. End of chapter 12